We are looking at 1 Timothy. So if you have your Bible, you can open up to 1 Timothy. We're going to be in chapter 5. Chapter 5. If this is your very first time, um, we'd like for you to just look underneath your seats. And there's a Bible there for you. You can go ahead and grab that. That's the version we'll be using, the English Standard Version. Um, And you can just open it up there to 1 Timothy 5. If you don't have a Bible, please just keep that one. And that'll be our gift to you. Um, We're glad that you're here. And... What we like to do here is kind of go through books of the Bible. Um, we've been going through First Timothy now for uh, pretty much the entire fall. And um, after First Timothy, just kind of give you a heads up of what, what we're going to be doing here. Um, next week, we're going to stop for First Timothy. And we're going to do uh, on the 20th and on the 24th, a couple weeks of Christmas. And then after that, when we go into January, we're going to be doing a series called Encounters, basically. A lot of people make New Year's resolutions deciding to come back to church and, and revisit and those kind of things um, for, the, for the first time, maybe, or for, you know, the first time in a long time. And so we, we're, we're planning on that. And so we're wanting to, for the uh, month of January, for a few weeks, um, take that into consideration, figure that people would be coming. And we want to have a, a few weeks of just encounters of people with Jesus, people that are far from Christ or people that are sinners, people that um, don't know him. We're going to have these weeks where they can come and they can hear the gospel. They can say they can see an illustration of someone who's far from Christ and see how Christ forgives them and then say, hey, that, that's me. I, I associate with that. that. That makes sense. And hopefully throughout um, January, we'll have uh, the Lord bless and, and that we'd see salvation and that um, people would come to know him after that for the month of February. Um, right now, I'm thinking about going back to First Timothy, but I have another idea I'm not really sure on yet. Uh, I need to get some more feedback, but that's, that's kind of the idea of where we're going right now. Um, but right now we're looking at First Timothy chapter 5. And so um, here, Paul's been talking about the church to Timothy um, over, over and over again. He's just been given advice. Paul's the one who wrote this to a man named Timothy who's a pastor at a, at a place called Ephesus. He's been given a bit of advice on how to, how to do this church and how things should look there. Um, and as we've looked at the book so far, um, he's told... He's told Timothy in chapter one um, the right theology that he needs to have and warning him against these false teachers. And then he went into chapter two and just kind of gave him um, what would be the role of women in the church and how we should pray and what we should think about missions. And then he went to chapter three and talked about offices. Um, in chapter three, we looked at two offices specifically. One was elders and one was deacons. Um, and in chapter three, verses one through 70, he gave instructions for the office of elder, which we will reference today because we're going to be looking at elders again. Um, in chapter 4, he talked about people that are going to be falling away from Christ and what that looks like and how we, uh, as Christians, know that they're going to walk away. It tells us in, in verse 1, the Spirit expressly says, in later times some will depart from the faith. And so since, that the, since that's the case, but we looked at the very end in v- verse 16 where it says, if we persist in these things, we can save both ourselves and our hearers. Now we know it's God who saves um, in the end, but... <clears throat> If we do these things, which are all the things in verses 1 through 15, we can be used by God to save some of those that would fall away. And so we looked at that for two weeks. And now we got here to verse five, uh, chapter 5, and he's, he's looking at um, relationships in the church and how that all works out and how that looks. And in verses 1 and 2, he talked about older women and younger women and older men and younger men and how all that relationship works and how, how that can remain pure. And then he went to verse, in verse 3 in chapter 5, and he tells us this in, in verse 3. And he's really going to pick up a theme here for, for a while, which is honor. If you look at verse 3 and 5, it says, honor widows. And then we, we just looked at all that last week. Um, you can pick that up on the podcast if you want, about what it looks like to honor widows. Um, now, 
after he says honor widows, you're going to see that there's a theme of honor that he's going to that he's going to look at for the rest of the time here. In, in verse three here, it says honor widows. If you skip down to verse 17 of chapter five, it says, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor. So you can see the word honor again. And if you flip over to chapter six, verse one, um, let all who are under a yoke of slaves regard their own masters as worthy of all honor. So we see in five, three honor. We see in five, 17, double honor when he's talking about elders. And then in six, one, all honor whenever he's talking about slaves and masters, which we'll, we'll talk about what it looks like in February, at least. Um, so we can see that there's there's a uh, there's a theme of honor right now and what honor looks like. And so that's what we're going to really be looking like looking at today in chapter five, 17 through 25 is the honor of elders and what that looks like. Before we, we jump in any further, I'd like to pray and then we'll uh, and then we'll get into it. Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, I pray that as we look at this text where we're talking about honor of elders um, and the way churches are structured, usually that doesn't um, make up the entire people in the church. It just makes up the pastors, not not the people. But we know that because your word um, is sufficient because we know that your word corrects and it rebukes and it trains us in righteousness. That even as we look at this text, that this is the very words of you speaking to us because it's living and active. And so I pray that we wouldn't just hear um, this this teaching on what it looks like to honor elders and just think that doesn't really apply to me, that doesn't really fit to me, but that we would see um though it doesn't directly seemingly apply, that there are multiple applications for our lives. And I pray that everyone here um, would see these things and that you would speak by the power of the Holy Spirit through me into their hearts and that you would convict them and teach them um, and give them comfort in all the areas that they need, Father. I love you and I love you and I thank you for for your word. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Now... He is he's talking here to the church and he's telling pastors um, that there's certain things that they need to look at. So what we're going to look at is just four categories. These, these are really broad. There's four broad categories that Paul he's finishing this letter. He's kind of writing some last things um, to the to the uh, pastor here, Timothy. And he's just going to cover really four broad categories regarding elders. So um, the title that I have here is, is uh, four categories of insight regarding elders. And the first one, we can just, you can go ahead and put it up. It's honor and respect the elders. It's right out of verse 17. Look what it says. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. So we're looking at four different categories here of insight regarding elders. And the first one is that we should honor and respect the elders. Um, what I want to do is look at verse 17 a little bit because I want you to see there's multiple things in there that we need to that we need to pull out for you to see. Um, first is when it says, let the elders rule well. Um, this rule is the uh, the providing of oversight for the church. Now, we know from chapter three that elders are pastors. This is a, uh, a synonymous word, elder, overseer, shepherd. All these things just mean pastors. And so. Whenever we were going through the qualifications in 1 Timothy 3, um, I made a case 
for every church having a plurality of elders, um, a plurality of pastors, multiple pastors. Now you say, all right, I'm familiar with that. I've been to churches that have lots of pastors. Um, just because someone is given the title pastor in the 21st century in 2009 doesn't necessarily that they mean that they've met the qualifications of First Timothy 3. Um, we've got, we've got in, in a lot of churches now where they'll give the title pastor to somebody who doesn't meet the qualifications at all. So um, we're not just talking about staff. We're not just talking about anybody that works on a church, um, works at a church. We're talking about people that have actually gone through verses one through seven. They meet the qualifications um, as well as that they're Christians and they 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 um, pursue Christ with their life, etc. If they if they meet these things, then they can be considered a pastor. Now, there's there can be staff that aren't elders. There can be people that work for a church that aren't elders. But there's also in a church a plurality of elders, a group of people, a group of men that lead the church, they rule over the church. And, that, and this rule um, is, in the, is in the best sense that you can think of. Um, it's not in some kind of domineering, you're going to do what I say, and we don't, we don't listen to anybody, and we don't really love Jesus. These are men who love Christ. They're pursuing God with everything that they have. And the church trusts them that they are pursuing Christ and lets them lead the church the way that they would say God would want them to lead. So it says, let the elders rule well, be considered worthy of double honor. Um, now, this double honor is really um, in, in two ways. And, and, and I've looked at the, the commentaries, and really the first way that they can um, give them double honor is through respect, which is we've seen here in this first point, in the first point here is honor and respect the elders. The other way is through financial provision. Now, I've seen, which we're going to see in just a minute in verse 18, um, I've seen some in commentaries say that since it says double honor, um, that you're supposed to respect them doubly, but you're also supposed to pay them doubly. I, I disagree with that. I don't think that that's what it means. Um, I think that you are supposed to respect them with double honor. But as far as financial compensation is, you're not supposed to give them double salaries that you would give normal people. It's just you, you take care of them is basically what it means, which we'll get into. Um, and it says, let the elders rule well who are considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor. And preach and teaching. The, the two words I want to look at in 17 are especially and labor. Now, this especially is interesting because it's it's seemingly saying that you, every church has a plurality of elders, a body of, of men that are the pastors. And it says that we should let the elders rule well. So all these men watch over the church. But then it says, especially those who labor in preaching, which means in the body of elders, not every one of them will be preachers because it says especially the ones who labor in preaching and teaching so all elders rule but not all elders will actually preach now that doesn't disqualify in in chapter three where it says that you have to um you have to have the gift of teaching when it says that they must be able to teach it doesn't mean that they can't they shouldn't have the gift of teaching they should but it doesn't necessarily mean that every single elder will always preach so especially those who labor in preaching and teaching the second word i want to look at is labor um this word labor is the same word in 410. Whenever we saw he said for this end, we toil and strive. This word toil is the same word um, in the Greek here in this verse. And so what he's insinuating is pastors who preach um, that preaching and teaching the word of God should be very hard work. It should be labor. It should it should be very difficult and toil and um, a lot of. 
A lot of work should go into it whenever a man would come up here and stand behind the word of God and try to preach it and teach it to you. That if it's done flippantly, if it's just done with a bunch of cross references and stories, then they're not laboring. Um, There should be lots of study, lots of care, lots of um, insight going into it throughout the week. So then he comes up here, he truly is taking in consideration that he is speaking the very words of God to people. So he labors in preaching and teaching. Um, Now, some of you might think that it's labor to actually sit through and listen to me as I talk. And I I appreciate that. But um, the act of speaking to you should be, as the Bible says, labor. That's what that's what it says. So since that's the case, um, there should be a sense of um, within the congregation, a, a sense of honor and respect for all men that stand and preach to you. There should be double honor given to them. Um, You should always be very careful um, with the words that you speak about pastors. Because the Bible says in 517 that pastors, specifically elders, are um, worthy of double honor. Now granted, there are men who walk out of this, um, this double honor. We hear stories all the time about men who have affairs and things like that. Um, which we're going to get into in the next in the preceding verses um, of what that looks like. Not preceding the verses after this. Um, anyway, let's go to verse 18. Uh, so the first thing is that we should honor and respect elders. Um, they're not your uh, necessary. They are your peer, but they're not just somebody you can just kind of talk any way you want to. Like, hey, what's up, dude? You can do whatever you, you need to show them some honor. Um, and I know I talk that way sometimes anyway. All right. Verse 18. It says, for the scripture says... Key in on that word scripture. This is very important. It's very interesting. Well, I'll show you something in just a second. For the scripture says, you shall not mu- muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Now, when I first read that my whole life, I've always wondered, what in the world does that mean? I don't know anything about farming. I didn't grow up on a farm. I don't even understand. I don't even know what an ox looks like, you know, at first. I didn't, I didn't understand any of this stuff. So muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. What in the world is this talking about? Now, a muzzle is something that you put over an animal so they can't eat something or really bite you and an ox is an animal obviously and it treads out the grain what they used to do is um, they would put grain on the ground and these these animals would run all over it and as they ran all over it they would tread out the grain they'd make it so that um, the grain was um, able to eat and what it's saying is um, you shouldn't muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain in other words this animal is being used to produce food it's very wrong to put a muzzle over it and not let him partake of the food that he's creating if he's creating something, um, something for everyone, it's it's wrong to muzzle him so he's not even able to partake of it. That's what it's, that's basically what it said. Now, um, Paul is quoting Deuteronomy here when he quotes this: "You shall not muzzle out an ox when it treads out the grain." And he calls it, which we saw, for the Scripture says, he calls it Scripture, and then he says, "And now this is very interesting." Um, he quotes this Old Testament verse. He says, "You shall not muzzle out an ox when it treads out its grain." And then he quotes. Um, the New Testament, specifically Luke, um, when Jesus says the laborer deserves his wages. Now, um, what he's doing is making Deuteronomy. And I know this is pretty much a no brainer for all of us because we all believe, yes, yeah, scripture, scripture. Um, and whenever we look at uh, because we, we've grown up in church, most of us, um, whenever we've grown up in church and we just believe this whole thing's the Bible. Yeah, it's all scripture. But some people don't believe that. Some people um, don't think that this is necessarily the word of God. 
But there is a very strong case that you can make um, very strong that just the Old Testament is scripture, because that's what all these guys um, whenever in Second Timothy says for all scripture is God breathed. Whenever he says that everybody in the first century um, knew that he's talking about the Old Testament, the Old Testament is scripture. And so there's a very strong case, at least that we can make um, with unbelievers um, in, a, in the realm of apologetics, which is just basically showing them um, the truth is that. Um, the Old Testament is scripture. The very strong case we can make that. Now, what he's going to do here is he is going to equivocate Old Testament Deuteronomy verse with this New Testament verse of Jesus in Luke. And I think it's in Matthew as well, but not the exact wording. Um, it says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain and the laborer deserves his wages. So he is, Paul is calling this quote of Jesus from the book of Luke scripture, which is huge. Because we can make a strong case for the Old Testament, but now we're starting to walk into um, the New Testament and be able to make a strong case that not just the Old Testament is Scripture, but also the New Testament. There's another place in Second Peter where um, Peter calls the writings of Paul Scripture as well. So there's, there's good grounds to be able to call the New Testament Scripture as well. That's just an aside, but back to the main point, which is this. Um, number two, number two, um, elders should receive compensation. Here's the idea. You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. If this animal is creating food, then you shouldn't, um, you shouldn't muzzle him and keep him from eating some of the food he makes. And then he, he, he qualifies that or he builds up the same argument by saying the laborer deserves his wages. If someone works, then they deserve to be compensated. And so um, what this is saying in the end is this. Um, the pastor should be allowed to eat, which just thinking of the animal and the ox, the pastor should be allowed to eat or use the money for his family of which he is grinding or which he is raising in the church. So as we take offerings every week, um, and most of you already believe this, but I'm just helping you see why you believe this. Um, the pastor should be able to, as we take offerings every week, um, have a portion for himself for his compensation. Um, because... You shouldn't muzzle an ox when he treads out the grain. If he creates something, there should be a portion that he should be able to eat to keep himself alive. And then the rest is for everyone else. That's the idea here. All right, let me give you just a couple verses from 1 Corinthians that you can, um, you can see the same idea. Um, in 1 Corinthians 9, it says this. 1 Corinthians 9, 11, it says, If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much that we reap material things from you. This is Paul talking to the church at Corinth. If we've sown spiritual things in you, then it's okay for us to be able to reap material things back to keep us alive. Um, in verse 14, it says this, in the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. Um, now, it doesn't imply that every elder of a church will receive a salary. That's not what it's saying at all. Um, but again, it is saying that you don't want to have the, you don't want the pastor to have to kind of beg and barter with the church just to be able to take care of his family. Um, and let me just kind of stop here and say, here, we're doing well here. Um, I'm not trying to um, build a case up just to set you up and say, so therefore, we're going to take five offerings. I'm not saying that at all. Um, we're doing well here. Um, the church, uh, I hear lots of, lots of stories um, from, from fellow church planters. Once I kind of got into church plant world about a year ago, I've met church planters all over the uh, all over the area and i've heard lots of stories about church planters that that don't get paid from their church for a long time and so um i'm very blessed here uh, i've been paid pretty much from the church the entire time um 
I uh, am full time here. And as far as we can tell, all of our regular tenders and members give and give regularly and give um, basically joyfully. They, they, we're doing really well here. So I wanted to tell you thank you um, and just kind of let you know that where we are is, is we're doing well. We are on a on a precipice um, or a place where we're we're kind of at a tipping point as far as right now, um, as we get our our monthly offerings in, we pay our essentials every month, um, you know, salaries and insurance and things like that, rent, those kind of things. And then that's what we pay. So that's where we are um, financially, which we're going to have a budget soon um, for 2010. In the next couple of weeks, we're going to give out to you. Um, we're also trying to raise support letters. That's why we're um, I also try to raise outside support. We're trying to keep the church solvent. Um, but right now we're doing well. We're doing really well. So um, much better than most most church plants are doing. So I just wanted to tell you thank you and tell you to conti- continue in that um, and congratulate you and, and, pre- and say I appreciate that. But back to the topic. The reason why I say all that is if. Um, churches make it difficult for the pastor to be able to reap benefits, material things from when he's so spiritually. If churches want to just kind of um, approach it like, all right, here's what we have. What can we pay him? Um, what's the least amount that we can give to him and, and it still be okay and he's going to be able to eat and that's about it. That's all we're looking for. Um, if, if Which I've seen, if Churches approach pastors that way. Um, you're going to you're going to put a stress on him that that isn't good, and you, he's going to stress more about being able to take care of his family financially. And this would be this would certainly interfere with his focus on the church. Um, so while we're doing well, I appreciate it. Um, if you know people in other churches that that deal with this, encourage them not to do that. Encourage them not to. Um, see what they can, quote, get away with and, and still be fine. You want to encourage them to um, treat their pastors with double honor, be able to take care of them because it, it's biblical that they be able to um, earn their wages. And I am by no means trying to make a case here that I, I deserve double honor or anything like that. I'm just saying we're doing well. Thank you very much. Um, and I appreciate it. All right. Back to back to this. Um, I'm going to start trying to turn it here because those first two things are so broad that honestly, I, I couldn't think of any way to try to make that apply to you in in the text. So as we turn the corner here and start looking at these next two, um, it's going to start applying to you a little bit more. All right, here we go. This is what it says. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them. Now we're speaking of elders. Rebuke them in the presence of all so that they may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging. All right. So what we're looking at here in verses 19 through 21 is how to discipline an elder, how to discipline an elder. Now, go ahead and flip over to Matthew 18. Um, I want you to see what are the rules laid out in Scripture on how we would hold someone accountable. Matthew 18 and look at verse 15. These are. Um, the verse is given to us. If you know someone who's in sin, this is what these are the guidelines that you would go through to hold them accountable. Now, notice this is different than First Timothy five. First Timothy five is how you hold an elder accountable. But this is how you hold up someone who's not an elder accountable. Look what it says. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. So you can see that's already different. And in First Timothy five, it says there must be two or three witnesses. But here. Um, it says this, 
If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. That's the first step. So in your life, this is why it's so key for everyone here to be involved in community groups. If you're not involved in a community group, if you're not doing life with someone, if you don't have, if you're a Christian, you don't have other Christians around you being able to speak truth, speak the word of God into you, watch your pattern of life and be able to say, this is what I see. They won't be ever be able to come up to you and say, I see sin and I need to be able to come to you and tell you that I see sin. Now, most of us don't want that. Most of us absolutely hate for people to come up to come up to us and say, oh, you're going to point out my sin. I appreciate that. I'm going to either tear your head off or or give you a list of your sins. Um, We don't want that. But the Bible um, over and over and over Let's us know that we need people around us. So um, here's here's a couple things. Number one, don't be prideful and reject Christian brothers and sisters who love you, who are seeking your your holiness. Don't reject if someone were to come up to you and want to hold you accountable in regard to your sin. These are good gifts from God. If you have someone in your life that loves you enough as a Christian brother or sister and courageous enough to come up to you and say, this is what I see. That is a good gift from God. That's not something that you should stiff arm immediately, but give an ear to. Now, there's, a, there's an often misquoted verse that says, um, judge not lest you be judged. And so people's like, who are, th- the first thing that we think of is, who are you to judge me? How are you going to be able to come up to me and tell me? But let me just ask this question. If in Matthew 18, it says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. If scripture commands you to go tell someone their fault if they sinned against you, doesn't it um, imply that you've already made a judgment? How would you know if they're in sin against you if you don't make a judgment to be able to go and tell them? So that's a very misquoted verse when it says, judge not lest you be judged. We are to judge people that are Christians. If you're a Christian and they're a Christian, then you are to judge them to be able to hold them accountable. Not in some kind of horrible sense. You go to them with the scriptures. You go to them having prayed. You go with them with tears in your eyes because you love them and you care for them. Just like Christ. And you say, this is what I see. You need to know that this is in your life. Because I want your sanctification just as much as I would want you to want my sanctification. I love you. You love me. We trust each other. We need to hold each other accountable and build each other up in Christ as much as we can. And if you don't have that person in your life, I encourage you. It's absolutely essential that you get in community groups. And when you're there, don't just think that some kind of magical um, accountability is going to happen to you. I'm here. Now it's supposed to happen. That's not how it works. When you get there, you have to actually... Um, extend out what's going on in your life to them through words and say, this is what's going on. Get to know me. Hang out with me. Do life with me. Let's go do things. Let's go have um, relationships outside of this with your family and my family, etc. Um, it's not just going to magically happen if you're sitting there in the room. That's not how it works. So your brother comes up to you and holds you accountable. Now, it says after that, if he doesn't listen to you, then there's another step. There's step two, which it tells us in verse 16. But if he does not listen, then take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. So if he doesn't listen, you go and you get your small group leader or you get um, some elders in the church or you get some other men. Or if they're women and you're a woman, you get other women um, in the church 
and you <clears throat> not gossip, but you go to them in order to get them to come back and go to them. Now, here's the key. When you're going through the steps of Matthew 18, holding someone accountable, the goal is not to kick the trash out of them. The goal is always reconciliation. The goal is for them to confess their sin and be reconciled to Christ. That's the goal. You're always seeking that. If, if you're trying to get any, if you're trying to make them feel guilty, you're trying to show them their sin because you feel like you're better than them. If you have pride, you need to confess sin. There's all kinds of things that we're not going after. What we're always going after is reconciliation, reconciliation back to God. And if you're thinking that way, when you go to them and confront them, it'll be very loving. It'll be very Christ-like. It, it would have been prayed through a lot. It, you'll go with them with scripture and say, I love you. Let me show you in the scriptures what I want to, what I want you to see and what's present in your life. And so um, you have the, the evidence of two or three witnesses. Now, the last step in verse 17 is if he refuses to listen to them, then you tell it to the church. Basically, you would go to the elders and tell the elders. Um, and if he refuses to listen to even the church, let him be as a Gentile and as a tax collector, which basically means as an unbeliever. Um, it doesn't mean that you break off all ties. It doesn't mean that you don't pray for him anymore. It doesn't mean that you're just kind of like, well, you know, see you later. Um, you still pray for them and you just give them the gospel like you would an unbeliever. You give them the gospel like you would an unbeliever. Now, that's the, I wanted you to see really fast that that's what you're supposed to do when someone's um, in sin in the church. But this is different. If you notice, this is how you deal with elders. It says, do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. So we can already see there's a difference here. Um, that there must be two or three witnesses. This is not like Matthew 18. The reason why is, this is from the New Testament commentary, it says the reputation of the elder must not be unnecessarily damaged and his work must not suffer unnecessary interruption. Um, if I stand up here and I say something that you don't like, um, if you don't follow 1 Timothy 5 but Matthew 18, you can just come up to me and just do whatever you want, um, which brings unnecessary interruption, especially if it's not true. So the reason why two or three witnesses strengthens its veracity, strengthens its truthfulness to you so that we would know that it's absolutely true. If just one person, then anybody could come up here and just start throwing out charges. And elders generally um, are men who are following after God, though they're not perfect. They have sin, but they generally are following after God. And if any um, thing comes to them that's that's wrong, then it could just r- basically ruin their entire ministry. And so Paul is wanting to avoid an elder's ministry being ruined. And so um, it says in verse 20, as for those who persist in sin. So this means that it's true. Two or three witnesses, the sin's true. Two or three witnesses come to him. The elder chooses not to repent, but he chooses to continue persisting in the sin then you're supposed to rebuke them in the presence of all. Now, um, if he doesn't repent, but continues sinning, Calvin says this, this is really important. This is talking about um, the, the sin itself. Calvin says, Paul speaks of crimes or glaring transgressions, which are attended by public scandal. So private sins are not to be openly reproved. Private sins that are not um, sins that necessarily hit the entirety of the congregation. Um, are, to, are not to be openly reproved. So I'm not perfect. We, I think we all can say amen to that. Um, my, my sins that I have, this does not mean every single sin that I commit, 
that two or three witnesses are supposed to come here um, and show that to me. And then I'm supposed to week, week in, week out, um, confess to you every single sin that I, that I have. That's not the spirit of this at all. It's the sins that are, that are public scandal in nature. These are the ones, especially if I, if I persist in it and I don't repent, these are the ones immediately. That there's, no, there's no other steps here. An elder is supposed to, as it says, rebuke them in the presence of all so that he may stand in fear. An elder is is supposed to be um, disciplined immediately in the front of the entire church. Now, why would he be rebuked? Why would he be rebuked in the presence of all? The elder is supposed to be um, corrected in front of the entire congregation um, because they've sinned in a way that has betrayed the trust of the entire church and shown the the congregation that this disqualifying sin, um, and there's a difference between disqualifying sin um, and non-disqualifying, but this disqualifying sin can't be covered up and it needs to be shown in order that the other elders, look what it says, look what it says, um, the end of verse 19, so that the rest may stand in fear. The other elders need to have a godly fear of, um, basically it's like a deterrent from keeping them from having their sin that they might be deciding to engage into not publicly put in front of the congregation. So um, when an elder sins publicly with disqualifying sin, unlike Matthew 18, he must be disciplined in front of the entire congregation. Um, Now, I've seen this not done well. Maybe it's the best way to say it. Um, And the reason why, in some of the senses that I've seen, is because... The church did not have a clear body of elders. They didn't have men who were, these are the pastors of the church. We trust them to lead us, to rule over us, to seek the face of Christ, and to discipline the congregation or other elders. And when that's not in place, then you're, then you're really asking for trouble. Um, and so, also, if they're not there... If one sins, then the rest of them won't stand in fear either. So you need to have a plurality of elders. Now, here we don't. Um, we're a brand new church plant, and we aren't there yet, but that's what we're going towards. Um, right now, I'm the only elder. But as I said in 1 Timothy 3, um, I encouraged every man here to aspire. It, it, it doesn't mean you're going to become an elder. It doesn't mean it at all. Um, statistics will show that if every man here aspires to the office of elder, um, a small, small, small percentage of you are actually going to make it. Um, there's a big process that you would have to go through. But it does says if a man aspires to the office of elder, and I don't see any reason why not to tell you to aspire to this office, because as you aspire to this office, you are clearly going to make forward progress in sanctification. Make forward progress in your, in your walk with Christ, becoming more like him. Because every elder should be um, becoming more and more sanctified. All right. Um, now, there's one other thing I want you to see here. It says uh, in verse 21, it says, In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, he names God and he names Christ and he names the angels just to strengthen the case that he's making. And he says, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging. This prejudging um, literally means without excessive haste, um, not trying to rush. It doesn't necessarily mean making a judgment beforehand. This is from Calvin. It doesn't necessarily mean making a judgment beforehand, but it means not to um, have excessive haste, that you shouldn't um, 
I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, without excessive haste. Do nothing from partiality. When you're doing nothing from partiality, the body of elders, if there's an elder who's to be disciplined, two or three witnesses have come. The body of elders isn't supposed to take a side and show partiality on either side. Um, there's not to be influenced, but to be completely objective in making a decision here. So the third insight here was how to discipline an elder. Um, now we're going to the fourth, fourth one. And um, this is probably going to be the most applicable to us as we look at it. Um, for, the fourth one is insights on examination of elders. Um, this, this is going to give us some, some insights on what it, what it means to examine them and make sure that they're, um, they're going to be worthy of being an elder. Now, as we look at this, this is just talking about um, how do we look at them and see what's in their life in regard to sin? How do we look at them and see what's in their life in regard to doing what it calls good works? Um, and it's just to elders, but I want you to see how this applies to you as well. Um, it's, it's very simple to have a, a, a good application for you as well. Look what it says in verse 22. It says, do not be hasty in the laying on of hands. This laying on of hands is the appointing or the ordaining of elders into your church. It says, don't be hasty. Don't rush to this. Um, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. Now, let me just take a little stop here. Um, it, it seems like when we're reading this, honestly, that Paul just ran out and, and did some errands, came back, wrote verse 23, and then ran back out and did some other errands, forgot completely that he had written verse 23, only remembered verse 22, and it seems like verse 22 just goes to verse 24. Let me show you what I mean. Look what it says. Do not be, I'm just going to read 22 to 20, well, I'll read 23 and then 24. I want you to see this. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. Go to verse 24. The sins of some men are conspicuous. Going before them appear to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. That seems to flow, right? Look at verse 23. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. It's like the translators didn't even know what to do. So they, in the ESV, they put parentheses here. Like, did Paul just wake up from a nap? He's like, oh yeah, Timothy, you know what? Don't drink water anymore. Just drink a little wine back to sleep. You know, what is he thinking here? Um, And I want to show you, I believe verse 23 is not just some kind of like weird nap experiment when he woke up and just wrote something on a napkin and thought, I'm going to add that later. Wait a second, what is this? I think that it actually flows. 22, 23, 24 flows. And I'm going to show you how. Um, Let's look at all three of them again. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands. Do not be hasty in ordaining elders, nor take part in the sins of others. Timothy, don't be a sinner like the rest of the people. Um, Keep yourself pure. Now, he turns it right there when he's talking to you. And he says, you, Timothy, stay pure. You, Timothy, stay pure. Now, I'm Paul, and I'm going to think of an example of how you can stay pure. Now, if you were here back whenever we're looking at 4, chapter 4, I want to to give you a quick refresher at 4. Look at 4.3. 4.3 says, well, let's look at at all of it, because I'm going to pick up in the middle of the sentence. But 4.3 is our main sentence. Look at 4.1. Now, the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teaching of demons. So some people are going to depart from the faith through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. We talked about who those people were in the first century, um, that they were the Gnostics. And it says, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods and drink that 
God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. These Gnostics were ascetics. Um, ascetics means um, these people lived a life where they totally denied most things that we need. Don't ever get married. Um, you shouldn't do that because anything you do that has to do with your flesh, if, if there's any pleasure you feel at all in the flesh, that's a sin. So when you eat that steak and it tastes good, that's wrong. So you shouldn't even eat food. When you get married and you have sex with your wife, that's wrong. You shouldn't do that. So you shouldn't get married. You shouldn't eat food. You shouldn't drink things that, that are pleasing. You should only drink water. That tastes bland. You should, that's all you should do. You should only eat generic food. These were ascetics. They lived a very austere lifestyle, meaning they kind of removed themselves and they just, they just denied themselves everything because... They believe Jesus, and I, I talked about this a little bit, was not um, 100% God and 100% man, that he wasn't man, that he was just God. And since Jesus wasn't man, everything that has to do with the flesh is wrong. It's very platonic in its thought in that um, whenever Plato, the philosopher before Jesus lived, um, believed that whenever you die, your body and your body is kind of keeping your soul trapped and whenever you die, your body finally dies and your soul is free from your body and it escapes from your body and your soul just goes and lives on forever. That's not Christian. We believe that the body will be redeemed as well. So we are body and soul. We're not platonic in our thought that when we die, that our soul does go until the end when Christ comes in the second coming. Then he redeems our bodies as well. And bodies and souls are reunited and redeemed and made like Jesus's body, his resurrected body. And so we believe in the body as well. All right, so I just went way off into nothing. But um, the point is, is that the flesh is not evil. Jesus was 100% man. Therefore, as we live, here's the application for us. As we live, it's okay to enjoy things that God created in the right things. If, if, you're, if you're married, then you can have sex. If you um, have food, it's okay to eat them as long as it isn't um, overeating or undereating. You should eat and have temperance, um, have a balance of the way you eat or imbalance in everything. And so it's not wrong. But there were there were people, ascetics that were coming along and saying, you can't do that. You can't do that. If you do that, then you're you're enjoying things. And that's wrong. You're enjoying created things. And that's wrong because everything here is wrong, bad. Now, back over to the verse. I'm going to show you how this applies. Verse 22. Um. Take no part in the sins of others. This others, I believe, are the ascetics. Not people who overindulged, but people who didn't do anything. They wouldn't take part of anything. He says, keep yourself pure. So this pure is not being like the ascetics. Not being like the people who are legalists, who try to earn their salvation by righteous living. They trying to earn right favor with God by not indulging in um, food, not having not they think they're earning righteousness by not doing things. Now, do you know anybody today that does that in the South? Do you know any legalists full of legalists? They think that we earn righteousness, earn more um, favor with God by the things we do rather than only by the gospel, the cross of Jesus Christ. It's the only place we receive our righteousness. We don't receive favor and righteousness. Yes, we get more sanctified by not having sin in our life, but we don't receive more righteousness or more favor with God just because you don't watch a rated R movie or just because you had a beer. 
you're, or not have a beer. Um, if you don't do those things, you're not earning righteousness. And so Paul is attacking the legalists of the day when he says, no longer drink only water, but use a little. Now, little's key. Remember back to the qualifications of 1 Timothy 3? He, he, he says you can't be an alcoholic. You can't be a drunkard. You can't be one that's given to much wine and get drunk. So getting drunk's a sin. So he throws the little in there just to make all the people say, oh, Paul told you to drink wine. That's not right. He says, use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and for frequent ailments. So what he's saying is, remember the context of the, the three words in verse 22. Keep yourself pure. Don't be like the ascetics. Don't just drink water, because if you are just drinking water, everyone's going to associate you, Timothy, with just like them. So it's okay to have a little bit of wine with your frequent ailments. Now, we can make we can make tons of guesses why he had stomach and ailment problems, and, and who knows why, and who knows why. But then he hops back on to the same idea when he says, the sins of some men are conspicuous. This is obvious or easily seen. The sins of some men are easily seen. So the one, the ones who just overindulge in sin, those things are easy to see. And look what he says here. Going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. These are the legalists. The legalists' sins are hard to see because their sin is that they think they're earning righteousness by trying to earn favor with God. They're the ones that are the legalists. So that's harder to see. All right. Um, now, how does all this apply to us? And this is insights on the examination of elders. Um, we have a process here um, for men that are aspiring to the office of elder. Now, verse 24 and 25 are basically um, the two ways we're going to look at it. We're going to look at 24 first. 24 is um, giving an illustration of two types of men that should not be admitted to elders. Both of them, neither one of them should be elders. First is, the sins of some men are, are conspicuous or easily seen or obvious, going before them to judgment. These men are the ones that just kind of walk around. It's just so easy to spot their sin. Um, they're, they're the... Uh, what's the best way to say this? Um, they're the ones that are just the dumb guys. I mean, they just make stupid mistakes, and it's real obvious that they're... That they're um, if you have children, this is something I've noticed. Um, I've got three. If you have young children, especially, they run everywhere. Like it doesn't matter what we're doing. Let's go get some ice cream. Okay, we just they just run over to the kitchen. Hey, y'all want to go outside? They take off to the door. Um, what if um, what if adults did that? What if every time we got excited for something, whatever it was, we just ran? Yeah, we want to go to Carowinds or whatever. Um, we just run out to the car and we're standing by the door. Let me in um, like a like a child. Um, if we did that, obviously, we would be able to easily spot immaturity, right? On, immature. They just run everywhere like a three year old. I mean, it, it doesn't matter what I care. So let's play Uno taken off to the closet to get the Uno cards. Um, she's addicted to Uno, by the way. Um, but if adults did this, it would be silly to watch a 25 year old male run everywhere as soon as we finish like as soon as we finish church and we said hey let's go here let's go oh there's a new zaxby's let's go and the 25 year old male zaxby's and he takes off to his car from here um like a three-year-old we would think easily to spot immaturity 
Some men walk in sin like this. They're so immature that they're just making bonehead, dumb decisions and their sins out before him. Easy to spot. There he is. He's running around. It's just so easy. But some adults, thank goodness, most adults walk. We, we, we walk places. Um, harder to spot their immaturity. Much more difficult. And this is what it's saying here when it says, but some of the sins of others appear later. I got I had a friend. I mean, they're just sneaky guys. They're just sneaky, sneaky guys. I had a guy in college just sneaky. Um, listen to this. He wasn't applying for eldership. This is what he did. This is what I mean by sneaky. Um, had a girlfriend and was going to be get in, getting engaged. This is the sense of what I mean by sneaky. Um, had a girlfriend that was... Um, Going to be getting engaged the next day. And so before he takes her the diamond, goes off with his old ex-girlfriend that night, showing her the diamond ring and making out with her the day before he's going to get engaged to his fiance. But no one found out. She didn't find out. The, the fiance whom he later married didn't find out. Um, just just that kind of guy, just just sneaky. But as we've seen, even in the news this week, your sins catch up with you. Y'all know exactly what I'm talking about. Um, plays golf. The, uh, your sins your sins will always catch up with you. There's no hiding it. Don't try to live a life of sneaky sin thinking that I'm going to keep these little sins in my closet. No one is going to ever find out. Um, your secret sins will always be found out. And here's the, here's the, here's the scariest thing. Um... I want you to think of it this way, because this should really help you see your little sneaky in the closet sins are always going to be found out one day. If not here. By your friends, which can hold you accountable, as Matthew 18 says, call you to reconciliation and repentance so you can come back to Jesus. If not here, it will be worse later. Because if no one here finds out, you think you're fooling Jesus, you think he doesn't know. And the judgment that you receive from that will not be something that you want. Your little sneaky, behind-the-thing sins will be found out. Men, if you spend too much time on the computer at night, away from your girlfriend or wife, that's going to be found out. Women, if all you do is dream about the way you wish your husband would be, like, look at that guy, I wish he would be like that, or you want to gossip, there's all kinds of little things, those sneaky sins, those, those things that you don't want to repent of, They will be found out. Let me read you a verse from Ephesians. Ephesians 5. This is for Christians. Ephesians 5. It should be up here. This is what it says. For at one time you were in darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. This is an exhortation, an encouragement for those that are Christians to live in such a way that you're not trying to keep little your little pet sins that you want to hide and keep unto yourself, that you're going to confess everything when people come to you and you're not going to hide stuff. Um, Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. Look Look at what he just said. I want you to really think about what verse 11 just said. In your own life, And in your friend's life that you know that you can go to and hold accountable. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness. 
But instead, take a little bit of time, be kind, give it a couple years, be their friend, ask them, you know, over and over, maybe that they could consider stop doing it. Um, just cover it up. What does it say? Expose them. There's no middle ground here. There's no take your time here. Expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, awake, O sleeper, and rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Don't find yourself comfortable with sin. And this is the exhortation from Paul to Timothy. Do proper examination on elders in regard to their sin. Take a while. Don't be hasty. Because some guys that want to come for elders are going to be like little three-year-old kids running around. Easy to spot the sin. Man, you don't qualify right now. Maybe later we'll keep praying. We'll keep meeting with you. We'll hold you accountable. We'll give you some books. We'll give you some stuff to think about, etc. But some men are sneaky. Some men just want power. Some men just want authority. Some men just want a position. You need to do proper examination on them. Um, Just this past week, it's kind of cool, the divine sovereignty of God, of how I got to experience this very thing this past week. Um, I was up in Asheville this past week um, with Acts 29, and we did an examination or an assessment of a church planner from Columbia. And I got to kind of, for the very first time, sit in on, I I had it done to me, which was very pleasant, but I got to kind of sit in on the meetings behind the meetings where we we, we talk with him and then they sit. And um, I got to hear more experienced pastors talk about the assessment process and the examination process of other people and just got great insights of what kind of questions you should ask. um, Great insights on good gospel questions, not just talking about what seem to be the periphery issues, but going down to the deep rooted problems with people. Um, and really not just trying to say, Hey, I see this, you can't do anything, but, but encouraging them in that. And so this is a good exhortation or a good reminder as one day, um, in the future, we're a year old and hopefully within the next year or two, because I'm not trying to be hasty, trying to take the advice of Paul, we're going to be appointing elders that will have a process that men will go through where they read books, they give their um, their theology on things, they talk about some of the um, sins in their life, we pray for them, we try to give them helps. We don't say that you can't do it, because no one's perfect. We try to say these are the helps that you can put around you to help you gain some ground in that. If your marriage isn't strong, here's some things to make your marriage strong. If your prayer life isn't strong, here's some things to make your prayer life strong. Whatever. Um, We all have sins that we need to get better at. So this examination process isn't just to say, here's all your sin, too bad. It's to say, here's some helps to make you a stronger elder. And Paul's telling Timothy, if there are men who have these things, and I'm telling you, if there are things in your life that are secret sins that just you know about, they will be exposed one day. So don't wait for the judgment. Confess them now. Allow people to be around you now. If you don't have anybody around you, go to someone and ask them to come to you and help you. Now, here's the next thing in verse 25. The same idea. Verse 24, two examples of men that absolutely should not be permitted as elder. Verse 25, two examples of men that should be promoted as elder. And where he said um, sin was was the overall category here. Good works is the overall category here. But the same thing. Look what it says in 25. Um, So also good works are conspicuous or obvious or easily seen. 
Um, so good works by men that should be admitted as elders are sometimes obvious. And even those that are not cannot remain hidden. So some good works are easily seen. Some good works are not easily seen. So just because you don't see good works in someone doesn't mean they shouldn't be an elder. The examination process is why you would see it. Um, a humble man isn't going to, in the examination process, come up to you and say, Hi, um, I just want to let you know, I get up every morning at 530, I have an hour of devotion time, um, and then I, I memorize, <clears throat> I've got the whole New Testament memorized, I'm working on the Pentateuch right now. Um, I spend 45 minutes in prayer. Then I preach the gospel to my children for 45 minutes. Then I go on a jog because I want to steward my body so well and take it in consideration that I, I go on a jog. I share the gospel at least 20 times per week as I do that. I average about seven salvations and that's all before 7 a.m. No one's going to do that. You have to ask questions. Tell me about your devotional life. Tell me about your prayer life. Tell me about your personal evangelism. That's what it says, that some um, good works remain hidden because a humble man's not just going to be, you know, just telling all his good works that he has to everyone. So an examination process would bring that out. So just because you don't seemingly see good works in a man doesn't necessarily mean that they don't have them. And so just like if there's sin in their life, you need to have an examination. You should look for good works as well through good gospel type questions. Um, now, here's what, uh, um, as we're, we're winding up verse 24 and 25 and we're talking about sin and we're talking about good works. I want to close with um, the key is, is this um, every sermon, every sermon that's good um, talks about Jesus and his gospel, not just an unloading of information. So what I don't want to do is just kind of let this feel like a seminary class and not like a sermon, um, because what I want us to see is there's not one person in here that can ever earn salvation confessing Jesus as your only hope for salvation, putting your faith in him and um, his finished work on the cross where he died for you. And the good works that you do that now follow salvation are not earning salvation or earning right standing in front of Jesus, but they're giving evidence that you have truly trusted in the gospel. And so for, for you, for you guys and girls that are walking through life right now, um, trying your hardest to not do wrong things and trying your hardest to do good things. I don't want you to think that in the end, that's how you're going to be saved. The truth is, is that you can never, ever be righteous on your own. All of your sins need to be forgiven. Every single one of them. Every one of us, whether we're non-Christians or Christians, continually need Christ continually need to preach the gospel to ourselves to remind us I need Jesus and I need to plead his righteousness in order to continue in this life. Um, what I see is this. We, especially in the South, we, we get saved at eight and we get baptized and then we, we live from eight for who knows how long thinking that everything's fine thinking that everything's great. And as we go through life, we, we, we think, all right, um, I'm a Christian because I, I was just talking with, with Corey this past week. Um, there's people that we know that say, when you get saved, I want you to write this day, you know, December the 13th, 1981. And I want you to write this day in your Bible. 
Um, this is the day that you were saved. So when the devil comes to you and tells you you're not a Christian, you can point to the front of your Bible and say, devil, I am a Christian. December the 13th, 1981 is the day I asked Jesus in my heart. That's why I know I'm, I'm saved. Um, that's not how you know you're saved. Not because you can point to a day. But because you can, from that moment till right now, you can look over your life and you can say, do I see over the last 15 years, 20 years, whatever, do I see fruit in keeping with repentance? Is there evidence? Is there evidence that I have fruit bearing in my life that I am walking with Christ right now? This evidence, this fruit does not earn me salvation. I'm not looking back and saying, oh, yeah, look what I did. That made me more favorable with God. Look what I did right here. That made me more favorable with God. It's saying at this moment, Jesus, I absolutely cannot make it on my own. I realize the wretchedness of who I am. I am totally depraved. I am completely sinful in every way. I only confess Christ as my only hope from this moment forward. I'm going to walk forward. And when I sin, I'm going to say, Jesus, you called me. You've imputed your righteousness. You've given me your righteousness. I'm going to continue to do good works. But because you've made me righteous, not because these good works are going to earn favor. And the problem is, is that when people get saved at eight, they think they've got to do the good works to continue to maintain favor with God. That's not what good works do. Good works don't maintain favor. The cross of Jesus maintains favor. Always. That's why you preach the gospel to yourself every day when you wake up and you're just wretchedly horrible and you've just done a ton of horrible things the night before. You preach the gospel. The gospel is, FUD, that God has imputed all of his righteousness to me. Therefore, I'm going to walk in victory today knowing that God sees me as righteous. I'm not going to try to earn it through doing all these things. I'm going to do all these things because he's made me righteous and I want to do them. So when someone says, I don't know if I'm a Christian, you get them to look back over and say, is there evidence in your life of a heart that's joyful and and loving the fact that Christ has imputed his righteousness to you whenever you confessed him and there's evidence now in your life? That's how you know if you're a Christian, because you have present faith in him and you have fruit giving evidence of repentance. Not because like the ascetics, like the legalists, you just don't partake in sin because you're going to keep sinning. And you're going to keep preaching the gospel to yourself. So this is great hope for us as we worship, because I know that every one of you like me can think of a massive list. And if you can't, then pride's the worst, a massive list of sins over the last week that you've done. So as we worship today, as we stand and thank Jesus for what he's done for us. We're going to preach the gospel to ourselves saying you have made me righteous. Therefore, I want to live a life of worship for you. And to you. And I just want to invite you into that this morning. If after the service you need prayer, please come pray with us. We'll have some people down here. Let me pray. Jesus, we thank you so much for your love and, and your word. God, and I pray. Um, I pray for your Holy Spirit now as we worship to enter into our hearts. Um, if we don't know you and regenerate those here Open their eyes spiritually for the first time 
to help them see and understand the gospel. The cross of Christ, that it is imputed righteousness. It is righteousness given to us and all of our sin given to him. Therefore, when you see us, you see us as righteous. So that's how we live. And for those of us, God, that are Christians, I pray that the reminder of the gospel would spur us on as we sing corporately and worship together now and as we go and as we live out the gospel to people. Be with us in our worship, Father. May we worship you with our entire heart. I pray these things in Jesus' name.